director of our lives. Well, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says that every day I want to offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. And then at the very beginning of that, he says, here's the motivation. In light of God's mercies, in light of all that I've told you in the first 11 chapters of Romans, in light of all that God has done for us and is doing in us and will complete through us, let's offer up our bodies. Let's sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. Let's surrender our hearts completely to Jesus. Let's let him be at the center of our lives. Let he be the driving force of everything that we do. And so Paul, in the very first chapter of Romans, says this is the essence of the gospel. That the whole book of Romans is unpacking for us what is the essence of the gospel. Where he said it is the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation, the Greek word sozo, means to save. That word save means to rescue. God has rescued us from the wrath of God. God has rescued us from the judgment of God. God has rescued us from the destructiveness of sin in our lives. To save, to heal, to heal our brokenness. We're all wounded creatures and we carry with us some very deep-seated woundedness. And God wants to bring healing and hope back where there is no hope. And certainly there's not any experience of healing, at least in this juncture of your life perhaps. And he wants to deliver us, what? From, from Satan, from the way that Satan uh, impacts our lives, the way he tempts us. He knows what our weaknesses are and he knows where to... Um, to where we're most temptable, and, and God says, like, I, I want to help you overcome that. Paul says, there's no temptation such as common to man, but God who is faithful will allow us to overcome those temptations, that God will p- supply for us a way of escape. And so this is the aspect of the gospel. So the gospel isn't just about being saved. The gospel is about everyday life. The gospel is about our future Our past, present, and future is all wrapped up in the gospel, and the gospel is the essence of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his now interceding for us as he is seated upon his heavenly throne, overseeing his creation. And so God has a future for us. And so Paul spent the first you know, eight chapters talking about why we need the gospel, how we receive the gospel, how we know that we've received the gospel, and what, that ha- what happens to us once we have received the gospel, Jesus, into our lives. And so we come to Romans chapter 8, and here Paul in that chapter, we'll just kind of uh, do an overview a, a little bit again this, this morning um, as it ties into chapter 9. And Paul, you know, he's all ramped up about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 28, and we know that in all things, how many things? All things. Circle the word all. All things. God works together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that we He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also what? Glorified. Now notice that glorification, that is, when God has completed this whole process of salvation, we exit this earth, we enter into God's presence, God gives us brand new glorified bodies, and we're no longer struggling with sin issues in our life, and there's absolute, complete healing, and we are in our glorified state of being as we will exist for all eternity, that Paul doesn't say this is a future event. He says we are already glorified. It is in the present tense. In other words, when you gave your life to Jesus and God put you into Christ and Christ into you, from God's perspective, he has already glorified you. In other words, what God began in your life At the moment of salvation, he will bring to completion no matter what. He's not going to drop the ball. He's not going to drop you along the way. He's not going to fumble you and you not make it. All right? So Paul says we are are going to reach this glorified state of being. But from God's perspective, we have already been glorified in Christ. And so last week we talked about the fact that God's promises always prevails because of God's sovereignty, his Sovereignty is his rule, his reign over his creation. That God's will will be done, ultimately in the end. 
There's no one who is greater than God. There's no power source outside of God. And therefore, what God promised to us through Christ, he will bring to completion. Now, in verse 19 and following in chapter 9, we're going to pick up um, another question that Paul answered. Because the first question was, well, okay, Paul, uh, God made a lot of promises to Israel, but the bulk of Israel rejected their Messiah, Jesus. What about those promises he made to them all the way back in the Old Testament? Is, is God going to hold those promises? Is God going to be faithful and true to those promises? So Paul began answering those questions. Another question that would come up is that, Paul, it just seems to me, it just seems to me that God is not always fair. Because here's what we do as human beings. If I were God, <laughs> how many times you said, if I were God, this is what I would do, this is how I would do it, and this is why I would do it. So there is a common scenario that most people live with if they're not atheists, right? They just don't believe there's a God. Or if you're like me, you just believe when you die, uh, you know, you're just annihilated, and, you know, um, life, you just never knew it existed. For most people, they have this scenario rolling around in their minds that goes something like this. Right now, I live on planet Earth, but I know someday I'm going to die. And someday I'm going to stand before God, and God's going to determine where I go after I die. Either I'm going to go to heaven on the basis of what I've done right, or I'm going to go to hell on the basis of what I've done wrong. That's the common scenario. If you really talk to people, this is where they're coming from. And so they think to themselves, but, but, this is what they always get, the but, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's a fair system. I don't think it's fair that Jesus is the only way. I don't think it's fair that not all religions are equal. I just don't think any of this is fair. Now, let's put that scenario that people have in their minds against the backdrop of the gospel. For example, first of all, this scenario is very much me-centered. It's not God-centered. Notice how many times I said, I will. I am going to die. I will stand before God. I, and, and it's just I, 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 I. And so it's almost like God is secondary. He's just like the arbiter of, well, what happens to me? But he's never done anything beforehand to prepare me for this moment in time. Like people just like trip their way into heaven or they trip their way into hell, right? Like there's nothing God's ever done that would keep me from experiencing hell. I don't think it's fair. Well, if you look at the gospel, the gospel is very much God-centered. It starts with God. It, it is all God in the middle. It's all God in the end. From beginning to end, it's all about God. God is the one who creates. God is the one who stepped into the realm of humanity to address the mess that humanity got itself into because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. It is God who came up with the plan of redemption. And by the way, he didn't come up with that plan after Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that before the foundation of the world, before we were ever created, God had already planned out what he would do as a result of humanity's rebellion. So from beginning to end, it is all about God, about God's redemptive kingdom. And so the Bible says the gospel, the essence of the gospel is that it is God-centered. The second problem with this scenario in our minds is that it's very much works-centered, not grace-centered. What's the determining factor as to whether or not God's letting me into heaven or hell? What I have done. Have I done enough good things? Did I do too many bad things? Is there some kind of grand scale in the sky as to whether or not, you know, I've done enough bad or enough good to get the good to outweigh the bad, and therefore that is the basis upon which I will enter into to heaven? And so people say, well, uh, my, my question to you is, well, if that's, the, if that's the scenario God's using, don't you think God would have told us that? Like, uh, you know, given us at least a midterm test to see how well we're doing? Uh, but he didn't do any of that, right? Because it's not a work sent. Listen, the gospel, this is so important, the gospel has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. 
It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done. It's not like God has this ladder, like rungs of the ladder, and I've done enough good works like to get me halfway up the ladder, and I only need enough grace from Jesus to get me on the top of the ladder so I know I'm going to heaven. You Listen, your sin is so sinful, you ain't even made it on the ladder. It doesn't take more grace for God to save somebody else than it does to save you. And the only reason we think that is because we get real comparative, right? We, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I haven't done da-da-da-da-da, and at least I don't do this, this, and this, and therefore, you know, I know I'm, I'm not perfect, and I need salvation through Jesus, but it's only going to take a little bit of grace on me to get me there. Now, Greg over here, it's going to take all, like buckets full uh, that God's going to have to dump on him to get him over the top, right? That's a works-centered, works-based kind of mindset, but that is the typical mindset that many people have. The gospel is all about God's grace. It starts with God and his grace. That's why Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So I have nothing to bring to the table. I have nothing to offer God. I have no payment plan that I can give to him, nor does he ask it. Here's the third problem with this scenario is this. The earth is seen in the story as somewhere we live now, but it is irrelevant to our future home. Like, we leave planet earth, we're never coming back here. Eh, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches at the end of time, God will destroy what sin has infected, which is planet earth. He will recreate it. That the new Jerusalem will come and establish itself on planet earth. This is where we're going to live. This is going to be the heaven. All throughout the Bible talks heaven and earth, heaven and earth, heaven and earth. God, creation fell, God redeems, God reconstructs, and he sets up his earthly kingdom here on earth, which is where we are going to reside. The heavenly Jerusalem comes down to planet earth. And so earth is very much a part of our future. It's not something that is going to be obsolete and thrown away. So having that as a backdrop, when Romans 8.28 says, you know, God uses all things in our lives in order to do what? To conform us to the image of Jesus. And in this confirmation, this conforming in the image of Christ, it all started when I took a step of faith and entered into a relationship with Christ. And it's so important to get this in your head, that when I entered into this relationship, God sealed me in that relationship for all of eternity through the person of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. And I use the example of Noah's ark. God said, come into the ark, Noah, not go into the ark. If I, if I tell you, go somewhere, I'm not there with you. If I ask you to come, I am there with you. Jesus is the ark. We're sealed into Christ, he into us. God shut the door of the ark. God put pitch on the outside of the ark to kind of waterproof it, which is the same word for atonement, which means that Jesus' blood, as he shed it on the cross, atoned for our sins, sealed us in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So as long as Jesus doesn't go down, I don't go down. As long as Jesus is alive, I'm alive. As long as Jesus begins a work within me, he will complete it. And while I live this life, I might stumble and fall and trip and those things, but I know my future is secure. And the reason why this is all so fair is because God has provided the way for this to happen for everyone, not some people. Sometimes people see the word election, predestination, um, that God chose, that somehow God just, people on the assembly line, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you have no choice in the matter. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. And so there are those who say, well, that's the way it is. No, it's not. But there is a tension, obviously, all through the Scripture, especially in the Romans 9 through 11, between God's sovereign rule and human responsibility. So in salvation, what's my responsibility? What is God's responsibility? How do the two coincide? 
This is so, so important that you get this right. Otherwise, you will never, ever feel as though you, um, you're saved or that you have any kind of assurance of your salvation. I know people who've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, but they're never sure. They can't say, well, you know, I know for certain that when I leave this body, I'm going into the presence of God. I hope so. I think so. I think I've done everything right. I think I've got it all, you know, mapped out. But God wants us to know, and this is so important that we know, in order to settle this issue in our, our lives. And a lot of people say, well, you know, if I were God, it would just be like all skate. Uh, everybody's going to heaven. And so when you have loved ones, hear me well, when Christians have loved ones, and you're not sure about that relationship with Christ, and they die, it's amazing the mental gymnastics we go through to get them saved. Well, I just remember back, you know, my, my grandfather, who's never been in church his entire life, didn't have anything to do with God, didn't want anything to do with God. But back when he was five years old, he made a decision, you know, in, uh, in children's church. So there was absolutely no change. No, so we do all kinds of mental gymnastics because we don't want to think about our loved ones not making it. But the Bible says, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the road that leads to God's paradise, to God's kingdom. There are a lot of people who are not going to make it, and there's a reason why, and it's because we try to get there on our own terms and not on God's terms. So, for example, um, the reason we have this unfairness in our, lodged in our minds, you know, our grandson had a, a birthday yesterday, Cooper, and he turned six years old, little birthday party here at the church. And now, now, you know, there's all kinds of kids sitting around watching him unwrap his presents. Now, he, it's his birthday, right? So the presents are for him. Now, what would happen if one of those children started grabbing presents and unwrapping them on their own, right? This is mine, right? The parent would have jumped in and said, no, no, honey, it's not yours. It's Cooper's birthday. It's not your birthday. And so in his little mind, it's like, that's unfair, he gets all the presents, I get none. This is not fair. I'm not getting anything here. Why? Does he, seem, does he deem that as being unfair because he doesn't understand? He just doesn't understand. It's not your birthday. Your birthday's going to come around. When it's your birthday, you'll get all the presents. Nobody's going to get your presents. They don't get to unwrap your presents. You see, this is kind of the way it is with us. In comparison to God, with our little finite minds, in God's mind that is infinite, there are things that we just don't understand, and then in our misunderstanding, we say to God, this is not fair. And Paul says, because this is what Paul was thinking, somebody's going to bring this up, let me show you why it is fair, and how what God has done through Christ is very consistent with his nature. That God hasn't hidden anything. He's not put anything in fine print. Oh, by the way, no. God has laid it all out for all of us in his word. So let's look in uh, Romans 9, beginning in verse 19. Uh, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make it like this? And so there's what? There's a, a questioning there. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for what? Common use. And so, for example, when somebody says it's unfair that Jesus is the only way, right? It's unfair that the gospel is wrapped around Christ and him alone. It's just not fair of God. There are all kinds of religions. You're telling me that people who are really trying to seek God, they're, you know, they're, they're, might be traveling different religions, that they don't all just eventually end up in the same place? And that's absolutely right. They don't. That's unfair. So Paul says in his mind, there's going to be that comparison that in your mind, but he says, in essence, God's actions, though, are consistent with his rights. They're consistent with his rights. Notice what he said in verse 20. He says, I'm thinking in my mind, this is unfair. If I were God, I would, I would do it this way. But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? How many of you would admit you've talked back to God? 
Right? What does he mean by that? Does it mean that you're asking God questions, that you don't understand something, and you're asking him questions? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. There are things that you and I are going to face in life, hardships and things for which we don't understand. And so, it, there's, listen, the whole book of Psalms is about David not understanding stuff, right? Lord, I don't get it. Why is this happening? What Paul is talking about here, the word of the phrase that he's using means that you are not approaching God reverently and respectfully, but you're approaching him out of a sense of rebellion, a sense of snarkiness. Like, you know what, God? If I were you, this is what I would do. I think you ought to do it my way. I don't understand why you're doing it your way. Therefore, I'm not following, right? I, I'm not agreeing. I'm not willing to surrender to this in my life. I, I just don't, I don't get it. And so, <laughs> for example, when people say something like, well, you know, Pastor, the reason why I don't follow the Bible is because it's so behind the times, right? So the Bible is what? The written word of God, the spoken word of God on paper that is truth, and truth is always timeless. But when people say, I don't understand why God's asking this or requiring this or forbidding this, therefore, I think it's just behind times. I'm not following it. If I were God, I would change it. All right? So that's kind of the attitude that Paul is, is getting at here. It is, um, and it's, it's not about asking questions and having faith and trying to understand truly what God is doing. The, he's speaking about the heart behind the question, the intention behind the question. There's only one other place this word is used, and it's in Luke chapter 14 in verse 6. Jesus is talking to a bunch of people, and uh, he's doing some teaching, and the scribes and the Pharisees are listening, and they are really upset about what he's saying, all right? Like, they're, they're ticked. They, they are fuming. They don't agree with what Jesus is saying. And so they really want to kind of talk back to him. They want to they give him a reply, which is the Greek word used here for talking back to God, they want to have this follow-up question, but it's not like they really want to try to understand. They just want to change Jesus. Like, Jesus, what you're saying is false. Listen to us. We got the truth. But they couldn't do it because they couldn't trap him. They tried to on multiple occasions, right, get Jesus in a the trap. They give him some questions, some scenario. Hey, Lord, you know this guy had how many... You know, this woman was married, and she, her husband died, and on and on. And so this is the person who's like, you know, I, I'm reading all this stuff, and it just doesn't sit well with me. I think that God is wrong. And so in essence, the leaders, the scribes were thinking, hey, Jesus, you're not Messiah. What you're saying is not truthful. You are wrong. In, in fact, um, they just become irate with him from time to time. And so this is the way that people approach God's Word oftentimes. They say, well, you know, I've read portions of the Bible, and uh, this just doesn't sit well with me. Uh, I'm in charge of my life, and therefore I want to do it my way. I think I have the right way. I don't think God, God's way is the right way. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it, and therefore I'm choosing what I want to do, right? So... <laughs> This is kind of what Jesus was dealing with with the scribes and Pharisees. This is what we deal with every day of our lives. Satan tempts us, right, to bypass what God says about something. I don't like what God said there, therefore, I'm not going to do it. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's logical. I don't think it's consistent. I don't think it's going to work, all right? So there, there are big issues in the Word of God for which we push back, and so Paul turns to two passages out of Isaiah in, in rebuttal to this, and he says, who is it that has the right to say to the potter, we being the clay, you're wrong, I'm right, I'm not doing it. Right, see, that is a lack of surrender. We're saying about surrender to Christ. If I'm surrendering to Jesus, I'm surrendering to his word. I may not understand it totally, and I may not even agree with it, 
But what God has given to me in his written word is God's truth. It is God's kingdom truth. God is God. I am not. I may not agree with it at the time, but if I really trust my father, then I will do what he's asked me to do. Who can, how can the potter say to the clay, hey, uh, you made me wrong. You sewed me up wrong. I would, listen, I was cut out to be a singer, but somebody sewed me up wrong. If you've ever heard, heard me sing, right? So it's just not, that's not what God. So what does the potter do? The potter molds and shapes and forms the clay. Now go back to Romans 8, 28, where God uses what? All things for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose to mold and to shape and to pattern you into the likeness of Jesus. Now, are there things that have happened in my life for which I did not understand? Absolutely. Cancer being one of them. Am I the clay to say to the potter, hey, God, you made a mistake. I should have never had this. This isn't fair. I don't think I'm being treated fair. After all, God, I do da, 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 da. It should never happen to me. And God's saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I'm molding you. I'm shaping you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. If you will yield this over to me, I will use it in ways that will not only impact your life and the lives of people around you, but you can use it as a platform for ministry in reaching others. And so I think that when we come to God with questions, we ought to act like Moses, who removed his sandals because he was on holy ground, and act like Job, who covered up his mouth because he was speaking things for which he didn't understand, and God had to put him in his place, and we ought to come like David with hearts that are ready with repentance. Listen, God is God. He has a right to do whatever it is he desires to do. My responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to follow him and to seek to understand as much as I can. But even with that, some things God holds in mystery. If Listen, if the only way you're going to walk in faith with God is that he explain himself, what happens if he doesn't? See, God wants to know, will you faithfully follow me even if you don't understand why this is happening in your life. In fact, you may never understand. I know we've got this concept, well, when we get to heaven, God's going to explain everything to us. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think God's going to have to sit down and explain anything. I think once you enter into heaven, that the glory of heaven will overtake you so much that you'll just be like, And so while the Bible nowhere teaches that God creates sinful beings in order to punish them, the Bible does teach this. God has every right to deal with sinful human beings because he is God. He can punish or he can pardon. He has that right. He is the potter. We are the clay. It is important to note that God sends no one to hell. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. None is righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but eternal life can be found in Christ Jesus. Listen, you're not destined for hell until everybody was destined to hell until God intervened, right? We were all on that road, that destiny, until God intervened through what? Through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said, unless the Father had called you, had drawn you into this relationship, you would have never come. Therefore, God, whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the archway, as we said last week, when you get on the other side and look back, but you've been called before the foundation of the world. I don't understand the tension between God's rulership and my responsibility. It is there. God has created us. In our sin, we were born as sinners, we practice sin, we, were, we are sin factories, and we are already under the wrath of God, 
destined for hell, but God intervened and God chose to set his love on you, to issue a call of the Holy Spirit, and you responded to that call, and therefore God took you off the broad road that leads to destruction and placed your feet on the narrow road that leads to paradise. That's a work of God. It's his right to say, well, if God's going to be fair, he's got to save everybody. Um, God's going to give everybody the opportunity, but the decision's yours. Not everybody wants to go to heaven. I don't know if you get, you understand that. All right, let's go to number two. God's actions are consistent with his reputation. Verse 22, he says, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? Underline, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Underline, prepared in advance for glory. And so what Paul is doing here is he's paralleling two verses. Verse 22 speaks of God's wrath and the objects of his wrath. Verse 23 speaks of God's glory and the objects of his glory and his his mercy. And so a key aspect of God's character is revealed in this. It says that God, what God was doing, he, he was patient. What, what if God choosing to show his wrath, make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath? And so what does 2 Peter 3, 8 tell us? That God is patient. He desires no one to suffer under the hand of his wrath. He, he, wants, he desires all to come under repentance, for everyone to find the pathway of Jesus that leads into heaven, into paradise. But there's this contrast between prepared for destruction and prepared in advance for glory. Now notice it doesn't say prepared in advance for destruction. In other words, those who say, well, God just predetermined whether you're going to heaven or hell before you ever entered into planet Earth. It was determined before you were ever born. That would be prepared in advance. He doesn't say that. He says prepared for destruction, but prepared in advance for glory. So what is Paul unpacking here when it comes to the consistency of God and his nature and who he is? Well, let's go to the prepared for destruction. Remember the uh, illustration that Paul gave in verses 17 through 18 was about Pharaoh. All right, Pharaoh, it says, hardened his heart, and that God hardened his heart. So you had Pharaoh hardening his heart, you have God hardening his heart. What was Pharaoh doing? He was preparing himself for God's wrath. Right, what is God's wrath? God's wrath is that God gives you over to what you desire. You desire sin? Okay, I'm going to give you over to that. This is what Romans chapter 1 is all about. It starts off talking about God's wrath and that God gave them over to their sinful passions, wants, and desires, and people's lives. Humanity began to unravel as a result of that. So with Pharaoh, he's holding God's people in captivity. God wants to set them free. He sends Moses as a leader. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, I'm not doing it. Not happening. So what does God do? He sends 10 plagues. Each one of them leveraged against one of the Egyptian gods. After the sixth plague, the Bible says six times Pharaoh hardened his heart. He just was not going to let them go. And so then it says, after that, God hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God, who hardened their heart? Both were hardening his heart. But it was Pharaoh first. The God hardening Pharaoh's heart was God's wrath being unleashed upon him. God was saying in essence, Pharaoh, if this is what you want, this is what I'm going to let you have. But I'm going to tell you, you are going to let my people go. It is going to happen. Why? Because it was God's predetermined will that there would be 400 years in Egyptian bondage and that they would be set free and move into the promised land. That was on God's heart, that was his will. And so Pharaoh prepared himself for what? 
for destruction. He's under God's wrath. This is what happens to humanity, is that God loves us. God wants to intervene. God wants to see you saved. God wants to see people saved. He wants to see your family saved. He wants to see your neighbors saved. He wants to see your coworkers saved. But if they just keep moving in their sin and they just keep hardening their hearts against God and the things of God, but I want to be my own little Pharaoh. I want to have my own little kingdom. I want to do my own thing in my own way. I think God's out of touch with reality. I think I've got a better idea. I've got a better way. And they keep hardening their hearts. Eventually, God gives them over to their sinful pattern and their sinful behavior. That's God's wrath. It's not lightning bolts from heaven. It is, that is God's wrath, he gives, which is a very dangerous place to be. Because now I am no longer sensitive or even receptive. I get to that point of no receptivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit who's trying to draw me into this relationship to move me out from underneath the hand of God's wrath, to move me out from underneath God's judgment, to allow me to experience the forgiveness of my sins, to allow me to experience healing in my life and where I'm broken and to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit who molds me and shapes me into the image of Christ. And so um, Paul makes this contrast, and he says, what, what, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Remember, before the foundation of the world, God prepared you. For glory. You responded to the call. He chose you. He justified you. He's going to glorify you. He's, in his eyes, you're already there. You haven't made it there yet, but in his eyes, it's already a done deal. These are aorist past, aorist tense verbs, which means they are past completed actions never to be repeated again. That's why salvation is safe. It is secure because it is in Christ. It's not what I brought to the table. It's what Jesus brought to the table for us. Now, we would, again, be less than honest if we denied the tension that exists between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is in control, but man is responsible. Jesus recognized the nature of this truth. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 22, here's what Jesus said. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man whom, he, who, whom betrays him. What, what did Jesus say? God's determined this, this is what's going to happen, but woe to the man who betrayed him was what? Judas. Was, was they, like God forced Judas to do that? No, it was, a, it was a response, and it was a decision that Judas made in his betrayal against Christ. There is that tension. So in our salvation story, it says that God draws us, that God God, God issues a calling upon our lives to enter relationship, and God's wrath is, is revealed against what? It's revealed against sin. God's wrath is always revealed against sin because sin separates. Sin is destructive. Sin destroys. And therefore, Paul is saying to us, in essence, listen, God's, God's actions, his, his wrath, here's what people do. They pull out one attribute of God. Well, you know, God's God of love, therefore he's just going to love everybody. If God really loves everybody, he's just going to let everybody in and, into heaven in the end. This is going to happen, right? Or maybe he'll send them to hell for a little while, but then he'll say, okay, you've paid your penance like it's purgatory, which there's no purgatory in the Bible, and you've paid your penance, and now you all can come. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what God teaches at all. Is God unfair? No, he's not unfair, because he does. He's displays. He says, this is... This is the way it is. I, I have come through my son Jesus Christ to what? To encounter the problem that humanity finds themselves in. And the problem is the wrath of God, giving us over to our sinful passions. If, I, if God gives me over to my sinful passions, as I said, the older a person becomes, the less likely it is that they will ever turn their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they, they're just enveloped, and now their passions have overcome them and saturated them, and they're not even hearing the voice of the Spirit. It just becomes fainter and fainter and fainter until eventually they're just like, you know what? I'm done. Now, they, they may at the end of their life 
try to reach out, but I have seen many, many people, I've sat at many, many bedsides, heard many, many people say to me, it's just not what I want, or I just don't believe that, or here's the big one. God and I made a deal. God doesn't make deals. He's the potter, you're the clay. He has only one deal, and his name's Jesus, right? So you are in no position to judge God. God is in every position to judge us, and he judged us through his son, Jesus Christ, which is why he died in our place as our substitute on the cross at Calvary so that you and I might experience the love of God, the grace of God, and that we might experience the mercy of God and that our hearts and our lives might be dramatically changed. Number three, God's actions are consistent with his revelation. Now, in verses 24 through 29, he quotes two prophets, the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Hosea is in reference to that of the, um, the Gentiles and Isaiah to the Jewish remnant. And so he goes on to say, listen, even, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, and I will happen, it, it will happen that in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so uh, if you'll recall back in the Old Testament, Hosea was a prophet of God who was told to marry Gomer, uh, his wife, and she was a prostitute, and she ended up, you know, r- running off and, and having an affairs and all these. They had three children, all right? Their three children, if you look at their names and the meaning of their names, um, this is the whole the point of it. The point of God asking Hosea to marry Gomer and to, you know, to go back and get her back from all the things that she was doing, he was saying to Israel, listen, this is how you've treated me. I, I've done nothing but love you. I've done nothing but care for you, protect you, provide for you, and you've turned your hearts against me. You've taken on other lovers, which the Bible calls idolatry, and you have, you have committed adultery against me because you have taken on other lovers. And so in the course, there were three children that were born, and their names meant scattered, not pitied, and not my people. And so what Paul, what Paul is getting at through this is that God had this relationship. He loved Israel. They were his chosen people. He wanted to protect them and provide for them and do everything that, that is needed for their, their safety and their, their blessing and all these things that God had this covenant relationship with. But they turned their back on him, and he says, you know what? Okay. This is what you've done to me spiritually. I, I'm... At some point, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to take away from you, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are anybody who weren't Jew, right? So what happened in fast-forward New Testament? Israel rejects their Messiah, by and large. Many Jews weren't saved. The early church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, which created problems. But by and large, you know, Paul sent out to the Gentiles. Peter also went out to the Gentiles. But if you look at the church in our day and time, there are very few Jewish Christians. There are some, a remnant, but there are not many. But there are, the church is primarily made up of Gentiles. And so God was, what did God say about the Gentiles who had entered into covenant relationship with him? Here's what 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, where he says the church is a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Paul is saying that through the Gentiles, we were once on the outside looking in, but now we are on the inside looking out, along with the believing Jews. And then he turns to Isaiah, and Isaiah makes a quote, cries out to Israel, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had previously said, unless the Lord Almighty had left his descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. And so just to kind of to wrap this up, it's like, okay, Isaiah was a prophet primarily to the, to, to the northern Israel. 
What did northern Israel do? They turned their hearts from God. Right? They started worshiping idols. They want to be like the nations around them. They were supposed to be God's missionaries. Want to be the nations. Prophet after prophet warned them. If you do not turn your heart back to God, God's going to carry you off into captivity. God wasn't trying to pay them back. He wanted to bring them back. They refused to listen. The Assyrians in 722 B.C. carried them off into captivity. God retained a remnant called Judah. But with Judah, the same thing. They started turning their hearts away from God, thought they were secure because they had the, the, the tabernacle and the temple, and they, you know, they got the Ark of the Covenant. God's surely not going to let that get carried off. And so God gives warning after warning, prophet after prophet. They ignore God, and then the Babylonians carry them off. However, it was for a very specific amount of time, 70 years. It was God's remnant. And it was through that remnant that we come you know, in the intertestamental time, and now when Jesus comes on the scene and he is coming as Messiah, those who are Jewish, by and large, uh, refuse to, to acknowledge him. They refuse to accept him. Why? Because their leaders led them astray. At one time, the scribes and Pharisees are watching Jesus heal a man who is demonically possessed, who is blind and mute, and when he finished the healing, they looked at their Jesus and says, you know how Jesus did that? It is from the power of Beelzebub. It is a satanic power. Satan is all over him. What do you think their followers thought? Well, this can't be Messiah. Can't happen, can't be. And Jesus confronts them. And so there's the rejection. So when you're in the New Testament, most of Israel rejects Jesus as Messiah. A remnant does receive him as Lord, Savior, King of their life. And when the rejection took place, God opened up the gospel to the Gentiles, who by and large began flocking to Jesus as Messiah of their life. And so Paul uses these two prophets to say, look, God's consistent with his revelation. He said this is what was going to happen. And it happened. And he says, if God had not done his work, that we would have ultimately all just ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah got what? Destroyed, leveled. If God had not intervened, if God had not unfolded his plan. So in God's sovereignty, he says, I will provide a remnant from Israel. I'm not done with Israel. As we'll see in chapter 11, God has a future for Israel, but in the meantime, I'm going to use the church as my primary missionary resource that is made primarily up of Gentiles. And so you and I sitting here, if you are a follower, born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you are the recipient of God's redemptive plan, of God's uh, revelation as to how he would love us and adopt us and make us a part of his family. Number four, God's actions are consistent with his redemptive plan. And so here's how he wraps it up. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is what? By what? Faith. All right, faith has to have an object. How do I become righteous in a right relationship with God? Who's the object of our faith? Not a trick question. Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who can make us righteous or right in God's eyes. How do I receive Jesus? Because I brought works to the table? I brought nothing to the table. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created ex nihilo, which means he created everything from nothing. When God created the means by which you and I can experience salvation, he created ex nihilo, that is, you and I had nothing to bring to the table. Jesus brought it all. That's why salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by my works, not by my righteousness, because this is where the Jews made the mistake. They attempted self-righteousness, but they fell, right? Jesus became a stumbling block. They said, but look, we, as Paul started off in chapter 9, we had all these advantages. We were a part of the covenant. Therefore, we just obey God, follow the covenant, get circumcised. We're in. 
We're in the kingdom. God's going to accept us. And so what were they ultimately doing? Trying to bypass Jesus in order to get into the kingdom of God. There is not a single person who can enter into the kingdom of God by bypassing Jesus. That's the whole point that Paul's trying to make. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone and through no one else. It's nothing that you have earned. And if you say, well, but I have a better way. I think I've got a better way. I think, there, I, I, think I, 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 can, I can bypass this. I think that, you know what, if I just uh, do enough good things, you know, because, again, the scenario is, well, you, if God is a good God and he's in a good place, then he's only going to let pe- good people there. Otherwise, it won't be good anymore. So the question ultimately becomes, then how good is good enough? How good must I be? If I'm going to have the mindset that God has this grand scale that my good works have to outweigh my bad works, how good do I have to be? And if God is overseeing that, how many points do I get for the good things I do? How many points do I lose for the bad things I do? Who's keeping track of all of that? Why don't I have a midterm exam? And if God is overseeing, I know it makes sense to us. Why? Because isn't it true that as we live our lives, good things usually happen if you do good, right? If I do well in school, I get a good grade. If I do well at a tryout, I make the team. If I behave at supper time, my wife lets me have dessert. If I misbehave, she sends me to my room. That's just the way our, our, our world rule rolls, and, and we just kind of carry that mentality into this relationship with God, and I just want you to know, and all that Paul is saying is that the reason why you are eternally secure, because Jesus is eternally secure, and if you are in Christ and he is in you, you are shut up in the ark of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You get there not because you brought anything to the table. You get there not because you are a good person you do good things, we all get there the same way through Jesus alone. This is the fairest system there is. Why do I say that? How can I say that? Listen, anyone who has come to the end of their own self-righteousness will stumble over the righteousness of Christ. It's a pride issue. Pride says, oh, no, 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 no. it's not just Jesus alone. I'm bringing some stuff to the table. I'm a pretty good person. I'm bringing some stuff to the table. I'm telling you, I'm bringing some stuff to the table. Well, no, you're not. You got nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Watch this. If you could bring anything to the table by way of good works, salvation is no longer a gift to you. It is something that God owes you. That's the difference. It's the fairest system. Why? Because everybody is welcome. Romans 10, 13. Everybody gets in the same way, and everybody can meet the requirements. So you might just want to jot down the word grace. G, God's gift to me. R, received by faith alone. A, anyone. It's available to everyone. C, it comes through Christ. And E, it extends through eternity. Salvation is a gift of God, His holy grace, not because of what I brought to the table, but because of everything that Jesus has done on our behalf. In light of God's incredible mercies, I offer up my body as a living sacrifice to be holy and pleasing to Him. That's my motive, not trying to earn my way into heaven, not trying to earn my way into God's good graces. I I obey the Lord. I follow him. I surrender to him in light of his, his mercies. Let's pray.